0: You can be seated and our kids can be dismissed to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We continue our series in the Beatitudes today with the second Beatitude, but let's read the first four verses together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our focus today will be on the last two verses. Let me read those to you again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A few years ago, uh, this sanctuary looked quite different. It's hard to remember how different it looked, but uh, it, it was really quite something. And Lord willing, we'll continue to make improvements to it, but we really have come a long way uh, there used to be a wall over there and there used to be carpet and there used to be rather dim lighting and the first thing we did i'm not sure why we thought maybe this was uh more more providential than we realized the first thing we did if i remember correctly was we replaced the lights with these you know basically operating room lights like we It changed the room entirely. We had these bright lights for the first time. We were so proud. It took a ton of work to do this and considerable expense, and we had this day where we kind of brought all the church in and we're like, "Okay, uh, like look, you know." And it was, but but I had to tell them one thing: don't look down, because the new lights had revealed about a bazillion stains on the carpet that we could not see with the old lights and so we quickly realized after we installed the new lights that we're going to need new flooring and it's just been one chain of things after another well that's actually kind of where we find ourselves in the beatitudes today the first one we looked at last week was that we are poor in spirit we are spiritually bankrupt we have no capacity to match up to god's requirements on our own And one of the things I said about that last week is that this is, when you understand that you are poor in spirit, the lights come on. Suddenly you are seeing things as they really are. Well, but now the lights are on. It's a good and bad thing. The lights are on. And now you can see the miserable condition that your heart really is in and how desperately you need God. And that's why Jesus says after blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he goes to blessed are those who mourn. Because the next thing, and this is all throughout the scriptures, the proof of real humility, godly humility, is a kind of grief over your state and over your need for Christ. The law is sort of like in God's economy, like the lights. The law exposes. The law reveals. And it's important to understand that in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, the law plays a very prominent role. In verse 17 of chapter 5, here in Matthew, Jesus says, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, "'for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. "'For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, "'not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law "'until all is accomplished. "'Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments "'and teaches others to do the same "'will be called least in the kingdom of heaven.' But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, listen to this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount is really elevating the standards of the law to fit his glorious kingdom. So now adultery isn't merely a physical act, but it's a mental act. And murder isn't merely a physical act of violence, but an internal act of hatred. He elevates, he raises the standard of the law, not reducing it. One of the things we need to be clear on is that the law is all over the Sermon on the Mount. And what it does, what the law does, what God designed it to do, is to reveal our sin, to reveal how fallen we are, and how short we have come. So being poor in spirit happens when we see ourselves in light of God's law. And the response to seeing ourselves in light of God's law is a kind of grief or a mourning. And that's why Jesus says, immediately following the call to be poor in spirit, that those who are grieving, those who are mourning are blessed. The Greek word for mourn here in this verse is pentheo, and it simply means to experience sadness or grief, not in the sense of losing a loved one, but sadness or grief as the result of depressing circumstances or the conditions of persons. And I love that you read this morning from Romans 7, Jared, because that's exactly what you see in Romans 7. You see, we didn't plan that. Uh, The only thing we planned was the bad note. That was the one thing. uh, But no, the... the, uh, it's, it's exactly what's happening in Romans 7. It's a grieving over the gap between what God's law demands and what God's law reveals in our actual lives. And so what we need to see today is that God has a plan for that. He has a plan for when his law illuminates our lostness. He has a plan for comfort to those who will refuse to turn off the lights, but will stand under the lights of the law, and let the law do its full work. So before what we're really going to be talking about today is the comfort of God, and we're going to receive the comfort of God from God this morning, but off the bat I want to talk about this idea that there are in fact true and false comforts. There are true and false comforts. Now. Before we get in, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the false comforts, but before we do that, let me just say one thing about the true comforts. We need to understand based on what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, four, that we do not need to be afraid to look the truth in the eye or let the truth look at us. That's something that we have to understand and God promises that if we mourn our sin, he will comfort us. We need to not be afraid of throwing open the curtains, switching on the lights and looking at ourselves and seeing the true naked state of our miserable condition. No excuses, no blame, no victimology, just extreme ownership for how short we line up to God's perfect standards. The basic takeaway, now we can do that without fear because God promises to comfort us when whatever is exposed is exposed. The basic takeaway of the sermon needs to be something like this. The same God who spotlights your sin will also spotlight your salvation. He will not leave you hanging. He will not leave you in a grieved position. He will lead you through a grieved position. He will spotlight your sin, but the same God who spotlights your sin will also spotlight your salvation. You do not need to fear the grief that comes from acknowledging your sin, because blessed are those, as Jesus says, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. As many of you know, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he's kind of moved for me from the category of favorite authors to favorite people over the years. I think it's like an introvert's dilemma when some of your favorite people are dead authors, but... I love this man. I feel like, I feel like we should be friends. <laughs> uh, we would be friends, but not equals. And sometimes when he writes uh, things, he's just wrong. And a lot of times uh, he writes things and he's just right. But there are moments when I swear, and this is a bit sacrilegious, so give me some, give me some heresy margin here. There are moments when I swear the Holy Spirit came down and grabbed his hand as he wrote. And there are these sweet moments where they just feel uniquely, uniquely true, uniquely beautiful. And I want to share one of those bits to you this morning. In his book, Mere Christianity, which actually has a number of wrong things in it, uh, he, he reaches a few summits that, that are rare even for him he has a whole chapter about how niceness is not the point of the gospel. And he talks about how there are people that have sort of a natural disposition toward being relatively good, not good in a total depravity kind of way, but they just have fewer um, encumbrances to sort of reasonable moral behavior, let's say. And then he talks about others who just have kind of the deck stacked against them. And I, wanna, I want you to hear the heart of comfort and promise that comes with just acknowledging, with just, here's a scary thought, standing under the spotlight, utterly who you are, and maybe not liking what you see. I want you to hear Lewis's words of comfort and encouragement. He says, but if you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing, in some house of vulgar jealousies, and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends. Do not despair. He, God, knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you were trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it onto the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard school. Some of the last will be first, and some of the first will be last. So do not be afraid of your wretched machinery. Go ahead, acknowledge the poverty of your spirit. Go ahead and grieve it, because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So there's three things we wanna accomplish today, and I wanna keep you on track, but I really believe if you'll just stay locked in, God will bless you today. Three things we're gonna accomplish. The first one, we're gonna identify some false comforts that are actually traps that steal comfort. Number two, we're going to identify one of the basic ways that God brings comfort to us. And number three, we're going to seek to receive some of his comfort this morning. In terms of false comforts, I would summarize what is a false comfort as this. A false comfort is an unlawful relief from the law. An unlawful relief from the law. The law brings Pain and discomfort, and clarity about the sad state of our souls. The law is the spotlight, and what I want to talk to you today about is some of the unlawful reliefs, the unlawful comforts we seek from that discomfort. The first one would be the the false comfort of favorable comparison. The false comfort of favorable comparison. By the way, I'm giving you this list of false comforts for two reasons. One, that you would not fall into false comforts. But two, and I see Christians do this all the time, that they give false comforts to their brothers and sisters. And you don't need to do that. It's not actually helpful. It'll make the conversation easier, but it won't make them more comfortable. So let's be on guard of these false comforts for two reasons. One, because they are false. And they're going to cause us more trouble than, than they really uh, bring, uh, comfort they bring. But also, let's be careful that we don't bring false comfort to our brothers and sisters in Christ when in that moment they need us to bring the comfort that God has. And the first one is the false comfort of favorable comparison. And it would be something like this lots of people struggle with this, or everyone's like this, or I'm not alone in this way, or so on and so forth. Well, that is true and doesn't do anything about your responsibility before God and about your condition. Number two, the false comfort of the cover-up. Suppose we put brand new lights in the sanctuary and we saw a huge stain on a wall. Well, what would we do about that stain? Well, Let's, let's figure out where the stain came from. Is it water damage? You know, let's suppose it's water damage. Well, that's no problem. We'll just hang a big picture over the stain, and we will uh, cover that stain up. It's like, boy, that's a terrible idea. You're allowing the problem to compound simply by covering it up. So one of the false comforts that we seek when we, when we feel exposed, when we feel worthless and miserable in our condition before God, is we will try to cover it up with some superficial good work or some excuse or some other thing like that. Uh, A third one, the false comfort of improved circumstances. You will sometimes, when you are feeling uncomfortable under the spotlight of God's law, try to change up your circumstances to make make your life just sweeter in general rather than deal with the actual discomfort you feel as a result of not lining up to God's law. Uh, The fourth one is the false comfort of consumption. And this is when we drink something or take something or eat something to take our mind off of it. Now this next one doesn't sound like comfort at all. The false comfort of circumcision. What do I mean by the false comfort of circumcision? Well, the whole trick of pastoral ministry in the first century was to show those people that as the law revealed their sin, they were not going to deal with their sin by trying to obey portions of the law that never were meant to forgive sin. So this would be sort of, I had to start it with a C because you know it's a disease that I have, uh, had to alliterate it, but this would just be the false comfort of legalism, the false comfort of give me a list of rules to do and I'll feel better about myself. And finally, there's the most dangerous of them all, and I haven't listed all of them, but the false comfort of a callous conscience. There can be a false comfort that sets in simply because over time you've ignored your conscience and repeatedly engaged in the same sinful behaviors over and over again. You haven't responded to the spotlight of God's law in an area of your life, and you can develop a calloused conscience where you feel more comfortable in your sin than you ever have before, but it's a calloused conscience. It's a terrible thing. Now, there's three problems with these false comforts, just quickly. First of all, they're all anti-clarity. They are all fog, right? They all keep you from seeing things as they are. And what's important about that to understand is is that if we're seeing these, uh, these, these principles in the Beatitudes in sequence, which I think that's appropriate, then we just gained clarity a second ago when we became poor in spirit. We just threw the lights on. We just are seeing things clearly for the first time. Do you know how precious it is to see things clearly? Well, when you go into false comfort, you, you turn on a fog machine in your own household and you begin to not see things as clearly as you did just a moment ago. So we don't wanna go into these false comforts because they are anti-clarity. We also don't want to go into these false comforts because they are anti-humility. You just gained you just gained spiritual poverty, true humility. You just woke up from what I would call the Laodicean delusion. What is that? Well, Jesus says in Revelation 3 to a church in Laodicea, a city called Laodicea, he says, you think you're rich and you're poor. You think, you think you're rich, but you're poor and you're blind and you're pitiable and so on. And, and the first deal for the Laodiceans to sort of repent is to come to this place of true humility. Well, if, when you engage in false comforts, you're throwing away the humility you just gained By the law's light shining down on you. And the third thing is that they are anti-law. False comforts are anti-law. Here's a simple idea. It's super logical. You cannot cure conviction that comes from violating the law by violating the law. Now, we have all done something like this to ourselves, maybe even this weekend. If you are a guy who did some home repair today and you're not great at it, there's this thing guys do where, they, where they, they, they can't do what they're trying to do or they can't do what they're trying to do very well or very quickly. And so what they should do is go ask for help or just take a deep breath and, and surrender to the slog that is awaiting them. But you lose your temper and you make the problem worse. Even just by being upset, your ability to control that screwdriver has lessened. right? Or you might actually break something. Don't ask me how I know all of these things. Or Even worse, by responding wrongly to the problem, you ignore it, and the problem just keeps getting worse. Friends, these false comforts are highly attractive, not only to engage in, but to dispense to others. And we need to be careful, because all we're doing is we're compounding the problem. We're not giving comfort, we're stealing comfort. Friends, poverty of spirit is a very precious thing to have. When someone has poverty of spirit whether they are themselves experiencing that or we're encountering someone who's experiencing that, let's be careful not to dispel this incredibly sweet gift of God that is poverty of spirit. The Bible says, the text that we read today says that if you are poor in spirit, you have the kingdom of God. And Friends, here's what I'd be concerned about. I would be concerned that we would not forsake our inheritance, the kingdom of God, for a bowl of comfort soup. That's what I'd be concerned about. That we would indulge in the false comforts and remove the inheritance we have for us simply for a bowl of soup. That, by the way, if you read the Bible story, produced more pain than comfort in the end. So that's a little bit about false comfort. Now let's talk about true comfort. The Bible says that God himself is the God of all comfort. And he can give you a comfort that threads the needle. You know, there's that verse in Hebrews that says that the word of God is living and active and able able to split the difference, able, able to go between bone and marrow and so on and so forth. There's a way that only God can do where he can comfort you and keep you humble. There's a way that only God can do where he can comfort you and help you retain clarity. And there's a way that only God can do that can help Comfort you while also walking in obedience. So how does this work? Well, that idea is literally all over, not just the verses that we've read, but over the entire section of the Beatitudes. And one of the things, I'm gonna just walk you through a few features of the Beatitudes in general. One of the things I want you to know is that when Jesus inspired Matthew to write down the following, blessed are those who mourn, for they they will be comforted. I am certain that Jesus had at least one thought in his mind that isn't immediately obvious to us in English, and that is simply this. The Greek word for comfort is parakaleo, parakaleo. Now, that is almost exactly the same word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit, that word being paraclete. Paracleo, paraclete. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he isn't saying, oh, I'm sure this will all work out. He is saying, I know exactly not only how you'll be comforted, but I know who will comfort you, and that is the God of all comfort himself. The paraclete will do the paracleo. So in, in multiple texts, in the Gospels, in particular John, and in particular verse, or chapters 14 through 16, Jesus uses the phrase paraclete to describe the Holy Spirit, and it's most often translated as helper. But that's not really the best translation. You're like, what's the best translation? It's like mashing six words together. There is no best. Like in English, there is no best. And some of the English or some of the African language Bibles, they translate that with the phrase the one who falls down beside us they say that the holy spirit is the one who falls down beside us and what they mean by that is that an individual who upon finding a person collapsed along the road kneels down beside the victim cares for his needs and carries him to safety that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the holy spirit as the comforter as the helper the one who falls down beside us. Now, there's something very beautiful about understanding that the Holy Spirit is in charge of comforting you. The Holy Spirit is in charge of fulfilling this thing that Jesus says is going to happen in this particular beatitude. There's something very beautiful about this because the Holy Spirit, we might say, is the one who is to blame for us, to, for us feeling poor in the first place. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is, we might say, the one who is to blame for making us aware of our poverty in the first place. Jesus tells us in John 16 that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's like, who turned on the spotlight? What is the spotlight? The Holy Spirit is the one who is the spotlight, who, who uses the spotlight of the law, I guess you might say. He is the one who has spotlighted our sin. He is the one who threw open the curtains and let in the light. And what we see in the scriptures is that the same one, the Holy Spirit, who spotlights our sin does what? Spotlights our Savior. The same one who spotlights our sin does what? He spotlights our Savior. Friends, there's some stores with especially fragile merchandise, and I don't know if this is true anymore, but I remember as a kid noticing it, being a little freaked out. You would go into these stores, and there would be a sign that say, you break it, you bought it. Well, friends, I promise you that God honors that exact sentiment. If he breaks you with his law, he will buy you with his blood, and he will build you with his spirit. We don't need to be afraid of letting God use his law word to break us, because the very one who breaks us will buy us, and the very one who buys us will build us. Now, let's think about how the Holy Spirit brings comfort. How does God bring comfort? Well, here I want you to see the whole text for a moment. I want you to look at the whole text. Let me just read it. It's very short. Verse 2. And when he opened his mouth, he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't listen to the particulars right now. Listen to the general patterns. Listen to the structure, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A couple things I'd like you to know about this passage as we progress through it over the few weeks. The first one is, is that This is Jesus outlining the general milestones of the Christian life. It's not all perfectly in sequence, but it does have some kind of sequential order to it. And I want you to notice that the Christian life, according to Jesus, begins with spiritual poverty and ends with persecution. Now, if that's true, we better have one great comforter. If the Christian life begins with spiritual poverty and ends in persecution, we better have one who falls down beside us. And we do. But the main thing I want you to see out of this is that the entire passage is giving comfort. You could say one thing, for instance, that 30% of the verses uh, in this passage are about being persecuted. Why? Well, because there really aren't harder, there's not a harder thing in life to go through than to be unfairly slandered, and reviled, and persecuted. It's It's a very difficult thing to do. The, the, the point of this passage, the point of the entire Beatitudes to some respect, in some respect, is to give comfort to people going through hard spiritual milestones, hard experiences in the Christian life. The first one is, don't be afraid to be poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Don't be afraid to stand under that spotlight and mourn for your sin. You'll be comforted. And he goes on and on and on. And he says, essentially, every one of these difficult things, it's going to be okay. In fact, it's more than it's going to be okay. It's actually blessed. Feeling your spiritual bankruptcy is an unpleasant experience. Being persecuted is an unpleasant experience. Learning to be meek is an unpleasant experience. Being truly merciful is an unpleasant experience. Being a peacemaker is often a very unpleasant experience. And all of these things in their unpleasantness need comfort. We need to be comforted as we go through these things or else we just won't keep going. We need someone who falls down beside us. Now, what do we do about this? What is God doing about this? I want you to pay attention to how he helps people in these difficult states. And here I'm going to give you just one way that God gives comfort that I think is the way that most people miss but it's the main way that God gives comfort and in this I hope will be a blessing to you. How does he give you comfort as you're going through these things? He takes a facts over feelings approach. He takes a facts over feelings approach. One thing we can see Jesus doing here is putting facts before feelings. A person who is poor in spirit isn't likely to feel blessed. A person who is mourning their sin isn't likely to feel blessed. Jesus says, well, I understand how you feel, but let me tell you the facts. And the facts say you are blessed. He puts facts over feelings. This is so important, my friends. How does God bring us comfort? He brings us comfort by facts, not feelings. This is is, is huge. This could be a game changer for some of you. He says, you're feeling poor in spirit? Well, I'm sorry about that. The facts are, though, you're blessed. You're mourning? I'm sorry about that. I acknowledge your feelings, but the facts are you're blessed. you're You're trying to struggle through persecution? I bet that doesn't feel any fun, but here's the fact. The fact is you are blessed. Again, you may not feel it. But these are the facts. How does Jesus bring comfort? This is huge, because we all need this. And I think sometimes we blame him, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, as if he is not giving us comfort. It's like, no, that's not what's happening. His comfort comes from facts, first and foremost from facts. Listen, friends, in Christianity, like I said, me and C.S. Lewis, facts and feelings are sometimes, friends, and not only sometimes. But let's just... In Christianity, facts and feelings are sometimes friends, but friends, they are never equals. They're never equals. Facts are always superior to feelings. Now, a word to the feelers. And here I really do mean to be a blessing to you this morning, but I want you to understand if you are a feeling person who tends to, at least occasionally, walk in feelings instead of facts, and perceive the world via feelings over facts. Listen, I wanna be clear about a few things. That approach is holding you back. Let's, we have to stop acting like there's two kinds of personalities of equal value. Now, if you are a feelings first, first, first person, you are disadvantaged and you should overcome this. It's a character flaw. It is holding you back. It is holding you back in quite a number of ways. But one of the ways I wanna put forward to you today after all these years of pastoral ministry, is it's become quite clear to me that the people least capable of receiving the comfort of the Holy Spirit are those who put their feelings before the facts. The people who are the least comforted by God are those who listen in feelings and not in facts. The people the most resistant to God's promises are the people who perceive life through feelings and not facts. Some of you need to understand this. God doesn't withhold his comfort from you. It's everywhere in the Bible. He is dispensing his comfort to you right now freely and generously. But it is first and foremost dispensed to you through facts and not feelings. The real problem, friends, so often comes down to this. God is giving you facts and you are looking for feelings. Let's not confuse that with God not comforting you. And let's understand that if you are a feelings-first person, I want to invite you to see that that approach to life is simply not a recipe for success. It is not only keeping you, from a main source of God's comfort, but in many respects your feelings first approach has gotten you into some of the bigger difficulties you're in now that you need comfort for. Some of the things you've done or are doing that make you feel most ashamed came from acting on your feelings over your facts. Your temper, your lust, your spending habits, your hard speech. It's just so unfortunate that this becomes a lifestyle, but it just is. And I think we all have experienced it enough to have extreme sympathy for people who are there. I don't think there's any judgment here for this. But I want to be extremely brutally honest to you. Until you can make this shift, you're being held back. Christianity is a religion of facts perceived by faith that flows into feelings. Christianity is a religion of facts perceived by faith that flows into feelings. Get that order right and you will experience a completely different level of comfort and assurance and confidence in God. Now, that's a bit of a digression, but I trust helpful to some. The point is that Jesus, when he is giving these folks who are mourning and poor in spirit and persecuted, when he's giving them comfort, what is he doing? He's giving them one simple fact. And what is that one simple fact? You are blessed. You are blessed. Friends, the law is about the oughts. The gospel is about the ours. It's about what is true of you in Christ. And Jesus is telling the person that's poor in spirit or the person that's persecuted who all feel something other than blessed, you are blessed. Now listen, friends. That's possible because he knows the facts of your situation better than you do. He knows the facts of your situation better better than you do. Jesus knows more about me than I know about me, right? Now, that is actually uh, something that's easy to hear and under- say, accept, but let's just get into the weeds just a bit. I want you to consider that Jesus is just as familiar and knows just as well the version of you that's living a thousand years in the future as he knows the version of you that's sitting in this chair right now. Okay, let's just, let's just go on a little trippy trip here. Jesus knows the version of you. because Jesus is not constrained by a linear time thing. Jesus knows the version of you that is living right now in either heaven or hell a thousand years from now. If you're in Christ, I'm only going to talk to you about those that are in Christ. This is about dispensing comfort. That means that's some very significant things. Firstly, Jesus is just as familiar with the glorified version of you than this pitiful version of you that you've got right now. Jesus knows a me and a you. If you're in Christ that is completely free of sin, healed of sickness, completely satisfied in Christ, he knows that person. That's not not Jesus imagining a person. That's not Jesus predicting a person. That person exists a thousand years from now, or probably like, you know, let's be honest, some of us aren't the healthiest. You know, 30 years from now, that version of you is real, and Jesus knows it. And here's the other crazy thing about that way of thinking. That version of you is, this version of you is a mist. It's a vapor. I I love that God like allowed. Sorry that it it happened, but uh, I, I love that God allowed like the one song. First of all, the first song was just a solid yacht rock jam. Like I loved the arrangement of the first song we sang today, and then I love how there's this moment of like, like okay, got the wrong note, and then we sang thousands of other notes after that and they were all the right note friends do you understand that if you're in christ that's you a few bad notes at the beginning and millennia of notes perfectly tuned to the one who made you and so when jesus says you're blessed well, he knows the facts. He knows the you after all of this stuff is over. When Jesus says you're blessed, he is able to say that, not just in positional or legal sense, but in a sense more real than you or I can comprehend because he knows the forever you, the finished you, the redemption accomplished, and applied to you. And he says, trust me, you don't feel blessed? I see the full version of you. I see the version that was broken and bought and built. You're blessed. You, You are blessed. Not just you will be blessed. That's not what these verses say. You are blessed. He's not simply imagining something. Listen to the friends. This is, if you want to escape the feelings trap, this is what you've got to understand. Jesus is reporting the facts about you. He is reading your eternal file back to you. You are blessed. In fact, there's a beautiful example of this. I don't think a lot of people have noticed At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Just read 22, 16 through 17 to you. It's the last book of the Bible, last chapter of the book. Uh, You have these words. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. Now, let's grab a few things here. John is having a vision where he's seeing far into eternity future. He sees, the, he sees Jesus, and he has the spirit and the bride in this vision as well. Who's the bride? The bride is the full number of the redeemed from all sorts of lands, from all sorts of time periods. The bride is the full and finished number of those for whom Christ died. And let's just try to use our imaginations and imagine billions of people who all went through the same things we did. They were all broken by the law, bought by the blood, and built by the Spirit. And there they all are. Friends, there you are. You're you're in that photograph at the last chapter of the Bible. If you're in Christ, you're actually in the photo. Now, it's a, it's a lot of people. I don't think you can see yourself. Like the cameras back then weren't very good. But you're in the photo. And what are you saying to yourself through the spirit at the end of the book? Come, get here. This is great. But what you're saying to yourself is, he was right, you are blessed. You really are blessed. I wish you knew. You really are blessed. The job of a preacher is so simple. If any of you want to learn how to preach, there's two things make the rich feel poor, make the poor feel rich. Right? Make, Make those who are full of themselves realize they are nothing, and make those who are despairing realize you are blessed. And that's what we see Jesus doing for us. That's how God gives us comfort, He gives it through facts. And one fact in particular, you are blessed. And so you can look into that distant future when all of the assembled bride from all of the lands that have been in this world, from all of the time periods, tribes of every language and tongue and so on and so forth. They're all there. And here's what they're all experiencing. They're experiencing the end of all their sin and their sin nature. Jesus has wiped every tear from their eye. He has given them all, given you a new physical body, perfectly designed for what? What is, what is a physical resurrection body designed for? Well, one way to think about it is it is designed to withstand what C.S. Lewis calls the serious business of heaven. What's the serious business of heaven? Joy. Friends, if God dumped, lavished his goodness, his glory on you right now, you'd die. You'd, 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 you'd be crushed into a thousand pieces. You will receive, in the resurrection, you will receive a physical body capable of enduring the serious business of heaven, the very joy of God. You, will, you are you're surrounded in this picture that we're seeing. There you are. You're surrounded with people in the same condition, just like you. And, and they'll be your friends Forever. You've been given free and unfettered access to Jesus, the Holy One, the most beautiful and interesting and glorious person in the universe. And you will do all of this within the context of a physical created realm called the new heavens and the new earth. And it is just kind of like this world, only high def and uncursed. So yeah, you are blessed. That's the facts. That's what your file says. And When Jesus says you're blessed, you're blessed. So you can let the law come in with its bright lights and show you your miserable condition, but you need to understand that that's only part of what God does. He also spotlights the glorious position you receive purely by grace because Jesus is that good. So when he says you are blessed, it's like I just had to unpack. There's a lot going on when he says you are blessed. He's saying the same God who broke you with his holy standard has bought you with his holy son and will build you with his holy sanctuary. Now, start, let's end where we begin. Uh, I said sanctuary there, spirit. This, this room used to look a lot different. And if God provides, as I hope he will, it will look even better. For those of you who have been here for some, quite some time, you See the difference. Friends, you used to look a lot different too. Let's not forget all he's done. And I don't know, like, well, when, you know, how 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 nice can we make this place? It seems like there's a lot more room for improvement, but I don't know. I don't know what God's gonna do. Here, I can tell you this I know what God's gonna do with you. If you're in Christ, it's already done, and Jesus sees the finished work. You do look a lot different than you used to, and God is going to keep transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. We don't have to fear the spotlight. We don't have to fear change. We don't have to fear the pain of sanctification, not because it isn't painful. It actually is excruciating, but because it is all all done in the hand of the one who also promises to bring us comfort. There's going to be a day, friends, when the Jesus, when, when the you that Jesus sees now is the you that you see, you are blessed. To introduce communion, I wanna read two texts to you. First one is just wrapping up and summarizing what so many of the sentiments I said in this sermon, that's from 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here we have today is a table built on facts. We have a table built on facts. And those facts are, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And he is so concerned that you remember those facts, that he has created an ordinance so that every week, week after week after week after week, you come and taste and see that the facts are the facts. God has come to earth. He has lived a perfect life. He has died on the cross and made payment for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You will be raised with him one day in glory. So now, if you're a follower of Jesus, come and partake of this table.